Chapter 17 For a long period of time there was much speculation and controversy about where the so-called missing matter of the universe had got to. All over the galaxy the science departments of all the major universities were acquiring more and more elaborate equipment to probe and search the hearts of distant galaxies and then the very centre and the very edges of the whole universe. But when eventually it was tracked down, it turned out, in fact, to be all the stuff which the equipment had been packed in. There was quite a large quantity of missing matter in the box, little soft, round white pellets of missing matter, which Random discarded for future generations of physicists to track down and discover all over again once the findings of the current generation of physicists had been lost and forgotten about. Out of the pellets of missing matter she lifted the featureless black disc. She put it down on a rock beside her and sifted amongst all the missing matter to see if there was anything else, a manual or some attachments or something, but there was nothing else at all, just the black disc. She shone the torch on it. As she did so, cracks began to appear along its apparently featureless surface. Random backed away nervously but then saw that the thing, whatever it was, was merely unfolding itself. The process was wonderfully beautiful. It was extraordinarily elaborate, but also simple and elegant. It was like a piece of self-opening origami, or a rosebud blooming into a rose in just a few seconds. Where, just a few moments earlier, there had been a smoothly curved black disc, there was now a bird. A bird hovering there. Random continued to back away from it, carefully and watchfully. It was a little like a picker bird, only rather smaller. That is to say, in fact it was larger, or to be more exact, precisely the same size, or at least not less than twice the size. It was also both a lot bluer and a lot pinker than picker birds, while at the same time being perfectly black. There was also something very odd about it which Random couldn't immediately make out. It certainly shared with pickerbirds the impression it gave that it was watching something that you couldn't see. Suddenly, it vanished. Then, just as suddenly, everything went black. Random dropped into a tense crouch, feeling for the specially sharpened rock in her pocket again. Then, the blackness receded and rolled itself up into a ball, and then the blackness was the bird again. It hung in the air in front of her, beating its wings slowly and staring at her. "'Excuse me,' it said suddenly. "'I just have to calibrate myself. "'Can you hear me when I say this?' "'When you say what?' demanded Random. "'Good,' said the bird. "'And can you hear me when I say this?' "'It spoke this time at a much higher pitch. "'Yes, of course I can,' said Random. And can you hear me when I say this? It said, this time in a sepulchrally deep voice. Yes! There was then a pause. No, obviously not, said the bird after a few seconds. Good. Well, your hearing range is obviously between 20 and 16 kilohertz. So, is this comfortable for you? it said in a pleasant light tenor. No uncomfortable harmonics screeching away in the upper register? Hmm? Obviously not. Good. I can use those as data channels. Now, how many of me can you see? 
Suddenly, the air was full of nothing but interlocking birds. Random was well used to spending time in virtual realities, but this was something far weirder than anything she had previously encountered. It was as if the whole geometry of space was redefined in seamless bird shapes. Random gasped and flung her arms round her face, her arms moving through bird-shaped space. Hmm, obviously way too many, said the bird. How about now? It concertinaed into a tunnel of birds, as if it was a bird caught between parallel mirrors, reflecting infinitely into the distance. What are you? shouted Random. We'll come to that in a minute, said the bird. Just how many, please? Well, you're sort of... Random gestured helplessly off into the distance. I see, still infinite in extent, but at least we're homing in on the right dimensional matrix. Good. No, the answer is an orange and two lemons. Lemons? If I have three lemons and three oranges, and I lose two oranges and a lemon, what do I have left? Huh? Okay, so you think that time flows that way, do you? Hmm, interesting. Am I still infinite? It asked, ballooning this way and that in space. Am I infinite now? How yellow am I? Moment by moment, the bird was going through mind-mangling transformations of shape and extent. I can't, said Random, bewildered. You don't have to answer. I can tell from watching you now. So, am I your mother? Am I a rock? Do I seem huge, squishy and sinuously intertwined? No? How about now? Am I going backwards? For once, the bird was perfectly still and steady. No, said Random. Well, I was, in fact, I was moving backwards in time. Hmm. Well, I think we've sorted all that out now. If you'd like to know, I can tell you that in your universe you move freely in three dimensions that you call space. You move in a straight line in a fourth, which you call time, and stay rooted to one place in a fifth, which is the first fundamental of probability. After that, it gets a bit complicated and there's all sorts of stuff going on in dimensions 13 to 22 that you really wouldn't want to know about. All you really need to know for the moment is that the universe is a lot more complicated than you might think, even if you start from a position of thinking it's pretty damn complicated in the first place. I can easily not say words like damn if it offends you. Say what you damn well like. I will. What the hell are you? demanded Random. I am the guide. In your universe, I am your guide. In fact, I inhabit what is technically known as the whole sort of general mishmash, which means... Well, let me show you. It turned in mid-air and swooped out of the cave, and then perched on a rock, just beneath an overhang, out of the rain, which was getting heavier again. Come on, it said, watch this. Random didn't like being bossed around by a bird, but she followed it to the mouth of the cave anyway, still fingering the rock in her pocket. Rain, said the bird. You see? Just rain. I know what rain is. Sheets of the stuff were sweeping through the night, moonlight sifting through it. So, what is it? What do you mean, what is it? Look, who are you? What were you doing in that box? Why have I spent the night running through the forest fending off demented squirrels to find that all I've got at the end of it is a bird asking me what rain is? It's just water falling through the bloody air, that's what it is. 
Anything else you want to know, or can we go home now? There was a long pause before the bird answered, You want to go home? I haven't got a home! Random almost shocked herself, she screamed the words so loudly. Look into the rain, said the bird guide. I'm looking into the rain, what else is there to look at? What do you see? What do you mean, you stupid bird? I just see a load of rain, it's just water falling. What shapes do you see in the water? Shapes? There aren't any shapes. It's just... just... Just a mishmash, said the bird guide. Yes. Now what do you see? Just on the very edge of visibility, a thin, faint beam fanned out of the bird's eyes. In the dry air beneath the overhang there was nothing to see. Where the beam hit the drops of rain as they fell through it, there was a flat sheet of light, so bright and vivid, it seemed solid. Oh, great, a laser show, said Random fractiously. Never seen one of those before, of course, except at about five million rock concerts. Tell me what you see. Just a flat sheet, stupid bird. There's nothing there that wasn't there before. I'm just using light to draw your attention to certain drops at certain moments. Now, what do you see? The light shut off. Nothing. I'm doing exactly the same thing, but with ultraviolet light. You can't see it. So what's the point of showing me something I can't see? So that you understand that just because you see something... It doesn't mean to say it's there. And if you don't see something, it doesn't mean to say it's not there. It's only what your senses bring to your attention. I'm bored with this, said Random, and then gasped. Hanging in the rain was a giant and very vivid three-dimensional image of her father, looking startled about something. About two miles away behind Random... Her father, struggling his way through the woods, suddenly stopped. He was startled to see an image of himself looking startled about something hanging brightly in the rain-filled air about two miles away. About two miles away, some distance to the right of the direction in which he was heading. He was almost completely lost, convinced he was going to die of cold and wet and exhaustion and beginning to wish he could just get on with it. He had just been brought an entire golfing magazine by a squirrel as well, and his brain was beginning to howl and gibber. Seeing a huge bright image of himself light up in the sky told him that, on balance, he was probably right to howl and gibber, but probably wrong as far as the direction he was heading was concerned. Taking a deep breath, he turned and headed off towards the inexplicable light show. OK, so what's that supposed to prove? demanded Random. It was the fact that the image was her father that had startled her, rather than the appearance of the image itself. She had seen her first hologram when she was two months old and had been put in it to play. She had seen her most recent one about half an hour ago playing the march of the Angequantine Star Guard. Only that it's no more there or not there than the sheet was, said the bird. It's just the interaction of water from the sky moving in one direction with light at frequencies your senses can detect moving in another. It makes an apparently solid image in your mind, but it's all just images in the mishmash. Here's another one for you. My mother, said Random. 
No, said the bird. I know my mother when I see her. The image was of a woman emerging from a spacecraft inside a large grey hangar-like building. She was being escorted by a group of tall, thin, purplish-green creatures. It was definitely Random's mother. Well, almost definitely. Trillian wouldn't have been walking quite so uncertainly in low gravity, or looking around her at a boring old life-support environment with quite such a disbelieving look on her face, or carrying such a quaint old camera. So who is it? demanded Random. She is part of the extent of your mother on the probability axis, said the bird guide. I haven't the faintest idea what you mean. Space, time and probability all have axes along which it is possible to move. Still don't know, though I think... No, explain. I thought you wanted to go home. Explain! Would you like to see your home. See it? It was destroyed. It is discontinuous along the probability axis. Look. Something very strange and wonderful now swam into view in the rain. It was a huge, bluish, greenish globe, misty and cloud-covered, turning with majestic slowness against a black, starry background. Now you see it, said the bird. Now you don't. A little less than two miles away now, Arthur Dent stood still in his tracks. He could not believe what he could see, hanging there, shrouded in rain, but brilliant and vividly real against the night sky. The earth. He gasped at the sight of it. Then, at the moment he gasped, it disappeared again. Then it appeared again. Then, and this was the bit that made him give up and stick straws in his hair, it turned into a sausage. Random was also startled by the sight of this huge, blue and green and watery and misty sausage hanging above her. And now it was a string of sausages, or rather it was a string of sausages in which many of the sausages were missing. The whole brilliant string turned and span in a bewildering dance in the air, and then gradually slowed, grew insubstantial, and faded into the glistening darkness of the night. What was that? asked Random in a small voice. A glimpse along the probability axis of a discontinuously probable object. I see. Most objects mutate and change along their axis of probability, but the world of your origin does something slightly different. It lies on what you might call a fault line in the landscape of probability, which means that at many probability coordinates, the whole of it simply ceases to exist. It has an inherent instability, which is typical of anything that lies within what are usually designated the plural sectors. Make sense? No. Want to go and see for yourself? To Earth? Yes. Is that possible? The bird guide did not answer at once. It spread its wings and, with an easy grace, ascended into the air and flew out into the rain, which, once again, was beginning to lighten. It soared ecstatically up into the night sky. Lights flashed around it. Dimensions dithered in its wake. It swooped and turned and looped and turned again and came at last to rest, two feet in front of Random's face its wings beating slowly and silently. It spoke to her again. 
Your universe is vast to you. Vast in time, vast in space. That's because of the filters through which you perceive it. But I was built with no filters at all, which means I perceive the mishmash, which contains all possible universes, but which has itself no size at all. For me, anything is possible. I am omniscient and omnipotent, extremely vain, and what is more, I come in a handy self-carrying package. You have to work out how much of the above is true. A slow smile spread over Random's face. You bloody little thing, you've been winding me up. As I said, anything is possible. Random laughed. Okay, she said. Let's try and go to Earth. Let's go to Earth at some point on its, uh, probability axis? Yes, where it hasn't been blown up. Okay, so you're the guide. How do we get a lift? Reverse engineering. What? Reverse engineering. To me, the flow of time is irrelevant. You decide what you want. I then merely make sure that it has already happened. You're joking. Anything is possible. Random frowned. You are joking, aren't you? Let me put it another way, said the bird. Reverse engineering enables us to shortcut all the business of waiting for one of the horribly few spaceships that passes through your galactic sector every year or so to make up its mind about whether or not it feels like giving you a lift. You want a lift? A ship arrives and gives you one. The pilot may think he has any one of a million reasons why he has decided to stop and pick you up. The real reason is that I have determined that he will. This is you being extremely vain, isn't it, little bird? The bird was silent. Okay, said Random. I want a ship to take me to Earth. Will this one do? It was so silent that Random had not noticed the descending spaceship until it was nearly on top of her. Arthur had noticed it. He was a mile away now and closing. Just after the illuminated sausage display had drawn to its conclusion, he had noticed the faint glimmerings of further lights coming down out of the clouds and had, to begin with, assumed it to be another piece of flashy sonne lumiere. It took a moment or so for it to dawn on him that it was an actual spaceship, and a moment or two longer for him to realise that it was dropping directly down to where he assumed his daughter to be. That was when, rain or no rain, leg injury or no leg injury, darkness or no darkness, he suddenly started really to run. He fell almost immediately, slid and hurt his knee quite badly on a rock. He slithered back up to his feet and tried again. He had a horrible cold feeling that he was about to lose random forever. Limping and cursing, he ran. He didn't know what it was that had been in the box, but the name on it had been Ford Prefect, and that was the name he cursed as he ran. The ship was one of the sexiest and most beautiful ones that Random had ever seen. It was astounding. Silver, sleek, ineffable. If she didn't know better, she would have said it was an RW6. As it settled silently beside her, she realised that it actually was an RW6, and she could scarcely breathe for excitement. 
An RW6 was the sort of thing you only saw in the sort of magazines that were designed to provoke civil unrest. She was also extremely nervous. The manner and timing of its arrival was deeply unsettling. Either it was the most bizarre coincidence or something very peculiar and worrying was going on. She waited a little tensely for the ship's hatch to open. Her guide, she thought of it as hers now, was hovering lightly over her right shoulder, its wings barely fluttering. The hatch opened. Just a little dim light escaped. A moment or two passed and a figure emerged. He stood still for a moment or so, obviously trying to accustom his eyes to the darkness. Then he caught sight of Random standing there and seemed a little surprised. He started to walk towards her. Then suddenly he shouted in surprise and started to run at her. Random was not a good person to take a run at on a dark night when she was feeling a little strung out. She had unconsciously been fingering the rock in her pocket from the moment she saw the craft coming down. Still running, slithering, hurtling, bumping into trees, Arthur saw at last that he was too late. The ship had only been on the ground for about three minutes, and now, silently, gracefully, it was rising up above the trees again, turning smoothly in the fine speckle of rain to which the storm had now abated, climbing, climbing, tipping up its nose and suddenly, effortlessly, hurtling up through the clouds. Gone. Random was in it. It was impossible for Arthur to know this, but he just went ahead and knew it anyway. She was gone. He had had his stint at being a parent, and could scarcely believe how badly he had done at it. He tried to continue running, but his feet were dragging, his knee was hurting like fury, and he knew that he was too late. He could not conceive that he could feel more wretched and awful than this. But he was wrong. He limped his way at last to the cave where Random had sheltered and opened the box. The ground bore the indentations of the spacecraft that had landed there only minutes before, but of Random there was no sign. He wandered disconsolately into the cave, found the empty box and piles of missing matter pellets strewn around the place. He felt a little cross about that. He'd tried to teach her about cleaning up after herself. Feeling a bit cross with her about something like that helped him feel less desolate about her leaving. He knew he had no means of finding her. His foot knocked against something unexpected. He bent down to pick it up and was thoroughly surprised to discover what it was. It was his old Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. How did that come to be in the cave? He had never returned to collect it from the scene of the crash. He had not wanted to revisit the crash and he had not wanted the guide again. He had reckoned... He was here on Lamwella, making sandwiches for good. How did it come to be in the cave? It was active. The words on the cover flashed, don't panic at him. He went out of the cave again into the dim and damp moonlight. He sat on a rock to have a look through the old guide, and then discovered it wasn't a rock. It was a person. Chapter 18 Arthur leapt to his feet with a start of fear. It would be hard to say which he was more frightened of, that he might have hurt the person he had inadvertently sat on, or that the person he had inadvertently sat on would hurt him back. There seemed, on inspection, to be little immediate cause for alarm on the second count. Whoever it was he had sat on was unconscious. 
That would probably go a great deal of the way towards explaining what he was doing lying there. He seemed to be breathing okay, though. Arthur felt his pulse. That was okay as well. He was lying on his side, half curled up. It was so long ago and far away when Arthur had last done first aid that he really couldn't remember what it was he was supposed to do. The first thing he was supposed to do, he remembered, was to have a first aid kit about his person. Damn. Should he roll him onto his back or not? Suppose he had any broken bones. Suppose he swallowed his tongue. Suppose he sued him. Who, apart from anything else, was he? At that moment, the unconscious man groaned loudly and rolled himself over. Arthur wondered if he should... He looked at him. He looked at him again. He looked at him again just to make absolutely sure. Despite the fact that he had been thinking he was feeling about as low as he possibly could, he experienced a terrible sinking feeling. The figure groaned again and slowly opened his eyes. It took him a while to focus. Then he blinked and stiffened. You, said Ford Prefect. You, said Arthur Dent. Ford groaned again. What do you need to have explained this time, he said and closed his eyes in some kind of despair. Five minutes later, he was sitting up and rubbing the side of his head, where he had quite a large swelling. Who the hell was that woman, he said. Why are we surrounded by squirrels and what do they want? I've been pestered by squirrels all night, said Arthur. They keep on trying to give me magazines and stuff. Ford frowned. Really? he said. And bits of rag? Ford thought. Oh, he said. Is this near where your ship crashed? Yes, said Arthur. He said it a little tightly. That's probably it. Can happen. Ship's cabin robots get destroyed, the cyber minds that control them survive and start infesting the local wildlife. Can turn a whole ecosystem into some kind of helpless thrashing service industry, handing out hot towels and drinks to passers-by. Should be a law against it. Probably is. Probably also a law against there being a law against it, so everybody can get nice and worked up. hey oh, what did you say? I said, and the woman is my daughter. Ford stopped rubbing his head. Say that one more time. I said, said Arthur huffily, the woman is my daughter. I didn't know, said Ford, that you had a daughter. Well, there's probably a lot you don't know about me, said Arthur. Come to mention it, there's probably a lot I don't know about me either. Well, well, well. When did this happen, then? I'm not quite sure. That sounds like more familiar territory, said Ford. Is there a mother involved? Trillion. Trillion? I didn't think that... No. Look, it's a bit embarrassing. I remember she told me once she had a kid, but only sort of in passing. I'm in touch with her from time to time. Never seen her with the kid. Arthur said nothing. Ford started to feel the side of his head again in some bemusement. Are you sure this was your daughter? he said. Tell me what happened. Phew! Long story. I was coming to pick up this parcel I'd sent to myself here, care of you. Well, what was that all about? I think it may be something unimaginably dangerous. And you sent it to me? protested Arthur. Safest place I could think of. I thought I could rely on you to be absolutely boring and not open it. Anyway, coming in at night, I couldn't find this village place. I was going by pretty basic information. I couldn't find any signal of any kind. I guess you don't have signals and stuff here. That's what I like about it, 
that I did pick up a faint signal from your old copy of the guide, so I homed in on that, thinking that would take me to you. I found I'd landed in some kind of wood, couldn't figure out what was going on. I get out and then see this woman standing there. I go up to say hello, then suddenly I see that she's got this thing. What thing? The thing I sent you, the new guide, the bird thing. You were meant to keep it safe, you idiot, but this woman had the thing right there by her shoulder. I ran forward and she hit me with a rock. I see, said Arthur. What did you do? Well, I fell over, of course. I was very badly hurt. She and the bird started to make off towards my ship. And when I say my ship, I mean an RW6. A what? An RW6 for Zark's sake. I've got this great relationship going now between my credit card and the guide's central computer. You would not believe that ship, Arthur. It's So an RW6 is a spaceship, then? Yes, it's... Oh, never mind. Look, just get some kind of grip, will you, Arthur? Or at least get some kind of catalogue. At this point, I was very worried, and, I think, semi-concussed. I was down on my knees and bleeding profusely, so I did the only thing I could think of, which was to beg. I said, please, for Zark's sake, don't take my ship, and don't leave me stranded in the middle of some primitive Zarkin forest with no medical help and a head injury. I could be in serious trouble, and so could she. What did she say? She hit me on the head with the rock again. I think I can confirm that that was my daughter. Sweet kid. You have to get to know her, said Arthur. She eases up, does she? No, said Arthur, but you get a better sense of when to duck. Ford held his head and tried to see straight. The sky was beginning to lighten in the west, which was where the sun rose. Arthur didn't particularly want to see it. The last thing he wanted after a hellish night like this one was some blasted day coming along and barging about the place. "'What are you doing in a place like this, Arthur?' demanded Ford. "'Well,' said Arthur, "'making sandwiches, mostly.' "'What?' "'I am, probably was, the sandwich maker for a small tribe. "'It was a bit embarrassing, really. "'When I first arrived, that is when they rescued me from the wreckage of this super high-technology spacecraft which had crashed on their planet, they were very nice to me, and I thought I should help them out a bit. You know, I'm an educated chap from a high-technology culture. I could show them a thing or two. And, of course, I couldn't. I haven't got the faintest idea, when it comes down to it, of how anything actually works. I don't mean like video recorders. Nobody knows how to work those. I mean just something like a pen or... An artesian well or something. Not the foggiest. I couldn't help at all. One day I got glum and made myself a sandwich. That suddenly got them all excited. They'd never seen one before. It was just an idea that had never occurred to them. And I happened to quite like making sandwiches, so it all sort of developed from there. And you enjoyed that? Well, yes, I think I sort of did, really. Getting a good set of knives, that sort of thing. You didn't, for instance, find it mind-witheringly, explosively, astoundingly, blisteringly dull? Well, uh, no. Not as such. Not actually blisteringly. Odd. I would. Well, I suppose we have a different outlook. Yes. Like the picker birds. Ford had no idea what he was talking about and couldn't be bothered to ask. Instead, he said, So how the hell do we get out of this place? Well, I think the simplest way from here is just to follow the way down the valley to the plains, probably take an hour, and then walk round from there. 
I don't think I could face going back up and over the way I came. Walk round where from there? Well, back to the village, I suppose. Arthur sighed a little forlornly. I don't want to go to any blasted village, snapped Ford. We've got to get out of here. Where? How? I don't know. You tell me. You live here. There must be some way off this Zarkin planet. I don't know. What do you usually do? Sit around and wait for a passing spacecraft, I suppose. Oh, yes. And how many spacecraft have visited this Zark-forsaken little flea pit recently? Well, a few years ago, there was mine that crashed here by mistake. Then there was, uh, Trillion, then the parcel delivery, and now you, and... Yes, but apart from the usual suspects, well, uh, I think pretty much none, so far as I know. Pretty quiet round here. As if deliberately to prove him wrong, there was a long, low, distant roll of thunder. Ford leapt to his feet fretfully and started pacing backwards and forwards in the feeble, painful light of the early dawn, which lay streaked against the sky as if someone had dragged a piece of liver across it. "'You don't understand how important this is,' he said. "'What? You mean my daughter out there all alone in the galaxy? You think I don't... "'Can we feel sorry for the galaxy later?' said Ford. "'This is very, very serious indeed. The guide has been taken over. It's been bought out.' Arthur leapt up. Oh, very serious, he shouted. Please fill me in straight away on some corporate publishing politics. I can't tell you how much it's been on my mind of late. You don't understand. There's a whole new guide. Oh, shouted Arthur again. Oh, 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 I'm incoherent with excitement. I can hardly wait for it to come out to find out which of the most exciting spaceports to get bored hanging about in in some globular cluster I've never heard of. Please, can we rush to a store that's got it right this very instant? Ford narrowed his eyes. This is that thing you call sarcasm, isn't it? Do you know, bellowed Arthur, I think it is. I really think it might just be a crazy little thing called sarcasm, seeping in at the edges of my manner of speech. Ford, I have had a fucking bad night. Will you please try and take that into account while you consider what fascinating bits of badger-sbutumly inconsequential trivia to assail me with next? Try to rest, said Ford. I need to think. Why do you need to think? Can't we just sit and go bum-dum-dum-dum-dum-dum-dum with our lips for a bit? Couldn't we just dribble gently and loll a little bit to the left for a few minutes? I can't stand it, Ford. I can't stand all this thinking and trying to work things out anymore. You may think that I'm just standing here barking. Hadn't occurred to me, in fact. But I mean it. What is the point? We assume that every time we do anything, we know what the consequences will be, i.e. more or less what we intend them to be. This is not only not always correct, it is wildly, crazily, stupidly, cross-eyed, blithering, insectly wrong. Which is exactly my point. Thank you, said Arthur, sitting down again. What? Temporal reverse engineering. Arthur put his head in his hands and shook it gently from side to side. Is there any humane way, he moaned, in which I can prevent you from telling me what temporary reverse bloody watsitting is? No, said Ford, because your daughter is caught up in the middle of it, and it is deadly, deadly serious. Thunder rolled in the pause. All right, said Arthur. Tell me... 
I leapt out of a high-rise office window. This cheered Arthur up. Oh, he said, why don't you do it again? I did. Hmm, said Arthur, disappointed. Obviously no good came of it. The first time I managed to save myself by the most astonishing, and I say this in all modesty, fabulous piece of ingenious quick thinking, agility, fancy footwork and self-sacrifice. What was the self-sacrifice? I jettisoned half of a much-loved and I think irreplaceable pair of shoes. Why was that self-sacrifice? Because they were mine, said Ford crossly. I think we have different value systems. Well, mine's better. That's according to your... Oh, never mind. So, <clears throat> having saved yourself very cleverly once, you very sensibly went and jumped again. Please don't tell me why. Just tell me what happened if you must. I fell straight into the open cockpit of a passing jet down car whose pilot had just accidentally pushed the eject button when he meant only to change tracks on the stereo. Now, even I couldn't think that that was particularly clever of me. Oh, I don't know, said Arthur wearily. I expect you probably sneaked into his jet car the previous night and set the pilot's least favourite track to play or something. No, I didn't, said Ford. Just checking. No, oddly enough, somebody else did, and this is the nub. You could trace the chain and branches of crucial events and coincidences back and back. Turned out the new guide had done it. That bird. What bird? You haven't seen it? No. Oh, it's a lethal little thing. Looks pretty, talks big, collapses waveforms selectively at will. What does that mean? Temporal reverse engineering. Oh said Arthur. Oh, yes. The question is, who is it really doing it for? I've actually got a sandwich in my pocket, said Arthur, delving. Would you like a bit? Yeah, OK. It's a bit squished and sodden, I'm afraid. Never mind. They munched for a bit. Hmm. It's quite good, in fact, said Ford. What's the meat in it? Perfectly normal beast. Hmm. Not come across that one. So, the question is, Ford continued, who is the bird really doing it for? What's the real game here? Hmm. Ate Arthur. When I found the bird, continued Ford, which I did by a series of coincidences that are interesting in themselves, it put on the most fantastic multidimensional display of pyrotechnics I've ever seen. It then said that it would put its services at my disposal in my universe. I said thanks, but no thanks. It said that it would anyway, whether I liked it or not. I said just try it, and it said it would, and indeed, already had done. I said we'd see about that, and it said that we would. That's when I decided to pack the thing up and get it out of there. So I sent it to you for safety. Oh yes, whose? Never you mind. Then what with one thing and another, I thought it prudent to jump out of the window again, being fresh out of other options at the time. Luckily for me, the jet car was there, otherwise I would have had to fall back on ingenious quick thinking, agility, maybe another shoe, or, failing all else, the ground. But it meant that, whether I liked it or not, the guide was, well, working for me. And that was deeply worrying. Why? Because if you've got the guide, you think that you are the one it's working for. Everything went swimmingly smoothly for me from then on, up to the very moment that I come up against the totty with the rock, then bang, I'm history. I'm out of the loop. Are you referring to my daughter? 
as politely as I can. She's the next one in the chain who will think that everything is going fabulously for her. She can beat whoever she likes around the head with bits of the landscape. Everything will just swim for her until she's done whatever she's supposed to do, and then it will be all up for her too. It's reverse temporal engineering, and clearly nobody understood what was being unleashed. Like me, for instance. What? Oh, wake up, Arthur! Look, let me try it again. The new guide came out of the research labs. It made use of this new technology of unfiltered perception. Do you know what that means? Look, I've been making sandwiches for Bob's sake. Who's Bob? N never mind, just carry on. Unfiltered perception means it perceives everything. You got that? I don't perceive everything. You don't perceive everything. We have filters. The new guide doesn't have any sense filters. It perceives everything. It wasn't a complicated technological idea. It was just a question of leaving a bit out. You got it? Why don't I just say that I've got it and then you can carry on regardless? Right. <clears throat> now, because the bird can perceive every possible universe, it is present in every possible universe, yes? Yes... Ish... So, what happens is, the bozos in the marketing and accounting department say, Oh, that sounds good. Doesn't that mean we only have to make one of them and then sell it an infinite number of times? Don't squint at me like that, Arthur. This is how accountants think. That's quite clever, isn't it? No! It is fantastically stupid. Look, the machine's only a little guide. It's got some quite clever cyber technology in it, but because it has unfiltered perception, any smallest move it makes has the power of a virus. It can propagate throughout space, time and a million other dimensions. Anything can be focused anywhere in any of the universes that you and I move in. Its power is recursive. Think of a computer program. Somewhere there is one key instruction and everything else is just functions calling themselves or brackets billowing out endlessly through an infinite address space. What happens when the brackets collapse? Where's the final end if? Is any of this making sense? Arthur. Sorry, I, I was nodding off for a moment. Something about the universe, yes? Something about the universe, yes, said Ford wearily. He sat down again. All right, he said. Think about this. You know who I think I saw at the guide offices? Vogons. Ah, I see I've said a word you understand at last. Arthur leapt to his feet. That noise, he said. What noise? The thunder. What about it? It isn't thunder. It's the spring migration of the perfectly normal beasts. It started. What are these animals you keep on about? I don't keep on about them. I just put bits of them in sandwiches. Why are they called perfectly normal beasts? Arthur told him. It wasn't often that Arthur had the pleasure of seeing Ford's eyes open wide with astonishment. Chapter 19 It was a sight that Arthur never quite got used to or tired of. He and Ford had tracked their way swiftly along the side of the small river that flowed down along the bed of the valley, and when at last they reached the margin of the plains they pulled themselves up into the branches of a large tree to get a better view of one of the stranger and more wonderful visions that the galaxy has to offer. The great thunderous herd of thousands upon thousands of perfectly normal beasts 
was sweeping in magnificent array across the Anhondo Plain. In the early, pale light of the morning, as the great animals charged through the fine steam of the sweat of their bodies mingled with the muddy mist churned up by their pounding hooves, their appearance seemed a little unreal and ghostly anyway, but what was heart-stopping about them was where they came from and where they went to, which appeared to be, simply, nowhere. They formed a solid, charging phalanx roughly a hundred yards wide and half a mile long. The phalanx never moved, except that it exhibited a slight gradual drift sideways and backwards for the eight or nine days that it regularly appeared for. But though the phalanx stayed more or less constant, the great beasts of which it was composed charged steadily at upwards of 20 miles an hour, appearing suddenly from thin air at one end of the plain and disappearing equally abruptly at the other end. No one knew where they came from, no one knew where they went. They were so important to the lives of the Lamwellans, it was almost as if nobody liked to ask. Old Thrashbarg had said on one occasion that sometimes, if you received an answer, the question might be taken away. Some of the villagers had privately said that this was the only properly wise thing they'd ever heard Thrushbarg say, and after a short debate on the matter, had put it down to chance. The noise of the pounding of the hooves was so intense that it was hard to hear anything else above it. "'What did you say?' shouted Arthur. "'I said!' shouted Ford. "'This looks like it might be some kind of evidence of dimensional drift!' "'Which is what?' shouted Arthur back. Well, a lot of people are beginning to worry that space-time is showing signs of cracking up with everything that's happening to it. There are quite a lot of worlds where you can see how the land masses have cracked up and moved around just from the weirdly long or meandering routes that migrating animals take. This might be something like that. We live in twisted times. Still, in the absence of a decent spaceport... Arthur looked at him in a kind of frozen way. "'What do you mean?' he said. "'What do you mean, what do I mean?' shouted Ford. "'You know perfectly well what I mean. We're going to ride our way out of here.' "'Are you seriously suggesting we try to ride a perfectly normal beast?' "'Yeah, see where it goes to.' "'We'll be killed!' "'No,' said Arthur suddenly. "'We won't be killed.' At least I won't. Ford, have you ever heard of a planet called Stavromula Beta? Ford frowned. Don't think so, he said. He pulled out his own battered old copy of the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy and accessed it. Any funny spelling? he said. Don't know. I've only ever heard it said, and that was by someone who had a mouthful of other people's teeth. You remember I told you about Agrojag? Ford thought for a moment. You mean the guy who was convinced you were getting him killed over and over again? Yes. One of the places he claimed I got him killed was Stavromula Beta. Someone tries to shoot me, it seems. I duck and Agrajag, or at least one of his many reincarnations, gets hit. It seems that this has definitely happened at some point in time, so I suppose I can't get killed at least until after I've ducked on Stavromula Beta. Only no one's ever heard of it. Hmm. Ford tried a few other searches of the Hitchhiker's Guide, but drew a blank. Nothing, he said. I was just... No, no, I've never heard of it, said Ford finally. He wondered why it was ringing a very, very faint bell, though. 
Okay, said Arthur. I've seen the way the Lamwellan hunters trap perfectly normal beasts. If you spear one in the herd, it just gets trampled, so they have to lure them out one at a time for the kill. It's very like the way a matador works, you know, with a brightly coloured cape. You get one to charge at you and then step aside and execute a rather elegant swing through with the cape. Have you got anything like a brightly coloured cape about you? This do, said Ford, handing him his towel. Chapter 20 Leaping onto the back of a one and a half ton perfectly normal beast migrating through your world at a thundering 30 miles an hour is not as easy as it might at first seem. Certainly it is not as easy as the Lamwellan hunters made it seem, and Arthur Dent was prepared to discover that this might turn out to be the difficult bit. What he hadn't been prepared to discover, however, was how difficult it was even getting to the difficult bit. It was the bit that was supposed to be the easy bit which turned out to be practically impossible. They couldn't even catch the attention of a single animal. The perfectly normal beasts were so intent on working up a good thunder with their hooves, heads down, shoulders forward, back legs pounding the ground into porridge, that it would have taken something not merely startling, but actually geological to disturb them. The sheer amount of thundering and pounding was, in the end, more than Arthur and Ford could deal with, after they had spent nearly two hours prancing about doing increasingly foolish things with a medium-sized floral pattern bath towel, they had not managed to get even one of the great beasts thundering and pounding past them to do so much as glance casually in their direction. They were within three feet of the horizontal avalanche of sweating bodies. To have been much nearer would have been to risk instant death, chronologic or no chronologic. Arthur had seen what remained of any perfectly normal beast which, as the result of a clumsy misthrow by a young and inexperienced Lamwellan hunter, got speared while still thundering and pounding with the herd. One stumble was all it took. No prior appointment with death on Stavromula Beta, wherever the hell Stavromula Beta was, would save you or anybody else from the thunderous, mangling pounding of those hooves. At last, Arthur and Ford staggered back. They sat down, exhausted and defeated, and started to criticise each other's technique with the towel. You've got to flick it more, complained Ford. You need more follow-through from the elbow if you're going to get those blasted creatures to notice anything at all. Follow-through, protested Arthur. You need more suppleness in the wrist. You need more after-flourish, countered Ford. You need a bigger towel. You need, said another voice, a picker-bird. You what? The voice had come from behind them. They turned, and there, standing behind them in the early morning sun, was old Thrashbarg. To attract the attention of a perfectly normal beast, he said as he walked forward towards them, you need a picker-bird. Like this. From under the rough, cassocky, robe-like thing he wore, he drew a small picker-bird. It sat restlessly on old Thrashbarg's hand, and peered intently at Bob Knows What darting around about three feet six inches in front of it. Ford instantly went into the sort of alert crouch he liked to do when he wasn't quite sure what was going on or what he ought to do about it. He waved his arms around very slowly in what he hoped was an ominous manner. Who is this? he hissed. It's just old Thrashbarg, said Arthur quietly, and I wouldn't bother with all the fancy movements. He's just as experienced a bluffer as you are. You could end up dancing around each other all day. The bird, 
hissed Ford again. What's the bird? It's just a bird, said Arthur impatiently. It's like any other bird. It lays eggs and goes ark at things you can't see, or car, or writ, or something. Have you seen one lay eggs? said Ford suspiciously. For heaven's sake, of course I have, said Arthur, and I've eaten hundreds of them. Make rather a good omelette. The secret is little cubes of cold butter and then whipping it lightly with... I don't want a zarking recipe, said Ford. I just want to be sure it's a real bird and not some kind of multidimensional cyber nightmare. He slowly stood up from his crouched position and started to brush himself down. He was still watching the bird, though. So, said old Thrashbark to Arthur, is it written that Bob shall once more take back unto himself the benediction of his once-given sandwich-maker? Ford almost went back into his crouch. It's all right, muttered Arthur. He always talks like that. Aloud, he said, Ah, venerable Thrashbarg, um, yes, I'm afraid I think I'm going to have to be popping off now. But young Drimple, my apprentice, will be a fine sandwich-maker in my stead. He has the aptitude, a deep love of sandwiches, and the skills he has acquired so far, though rudimentary as yet, will in time mature, and, uh, well, I think he'll work out okay, is what I'm trying to say. Old Thrashbarg regarded him gravely. His old grey eyes moved sadly. He held his arms aloft, one still carrying a bobbing picker bird, the other his staff. Oh, sandwich maker from Bob! he pronounced. He paused, furrowed his brow, and sighed as he closed his eyes in pious contemplation. Life, he said, will be a very great deal less weird without you. Arthur was stunned. Do you know, he said, I think that's the nicest thing anybody's ever said to me. Can we get on, please, said Ford. Something was already happening. The presence of the picker bird at the end of Thrashbarg's outstretched arm was sending tremors of interest through the thundering herd. The odd head flicked momentarily in their direction. Arthur began to remember some of the perfectly normal beast hunts he had witnessed. He recalled that as well as the hunter matadors brandishing their capes, there were always others standing behind them holding picker birds. He had always assumed that, like him, they had just come along to watch. Old Thrashbarg moved forward, a little closer to the rolling herd. Some of the beasts were now tossing their heads back with interest at the sight of the picker bird. Old Thrashbarg's outstretched arms were trembling. Only the picker bird itself seemed to show no interest in what was going on. A few anonymous molecules of air, nowhere in particular, engaged all of its perky attention. Now, exclaimed old Thrashbarg at last, now you may work them with the towel. Arthur advanced with Ford's towel, moving the way the hunter matadors did, with a kind of elegant strut that did not come at all naturally to him. But now he knew what to do, and that it was right. He brandished and flicked the towel a few times to be ready for the moment, and then he watched. Some distance away he spotted the beast he wanted. Head down it was galloping towards him, right on the very edge of the herd. Old Thrashbarg twitched the bird, the beast looked up, tossed its head, and then, just as its head was coming down again, Arthur flourished the towel in the beast's line of sight. It tossed its head again in bemusement, and its eyes followed the movement of the towel. He had got the beast's attention. 
From that moment on, it seemed the most natural thing to coax and draw the animal towards him. Its head was up, cocked slightly to one side. It was slowing to a canter and then a trot. A few seconds later, the huge thing was standing there amongst them, snorting, panting, sweating, and sniffing excitedly at the picker bird, which appeared not to have noticed its arrival at all. With strange sort of sweeping movements of his arms, old Thrashbarg kept the picker bird in front of the beast, but always out of its reach and always downwards. With strange sort of sweeping movements of the towel, Arthur kept drawing the beast's attention this way and that, always downwards. I don't think I've ever seen anything quite so stupid in my life, muttered Ford to himself. At last, the beast dropped, bemused but docile to its knees. Go! whispered old Thrashbarg urgently to Ford. Go! Go now! Ford leapt up onto the great creature's back, scrabbling amongst its thick, knotty fur for purchase, grasping great handfuls of the stuff to hold him steady once he was in position. Now, sandwich maker, go! He performed some elaborate sign and ritual handshake which Arthur couldn't quite get the hang of because old Thrashbarg had obviously made it up on the spur of the moment, then he pushed Arthur forward. Taking a deep breath, he clambered up behind Ford onto the great, hot, heaving back of the beast and held on tight. Huge muscles the size of sea lions rippled and flexed beneath him. Old Thrashbarg held the bird suddenly aloft. The beast's head swivelled up to follow it. Thrashbarg pushed upwards and upwards repeatedly with his arms and with the picker bird. And slowly... Heavily, the perfectly normal beast lurched up off its knees and stood at last, swaying slightly. Its two riders held on fiercely and nervously. Arthur gazed out over the sea of hurtling animals, straining in an attempt to see where it was they were going, but there was nothing but heat haze. Can you see anything? he said to Ford. No. Ford twisted round to glance back, trying to see if there was any clue as to where they had come from. Still nothing. Arthur shouted down at Thrashbarg. Do you know where they come from? he called. Or where they're going? The domain of the king! shouted old Thrashbarg back. King? shouted Arthur in surprise. What king? The perfectly normal beast was swaying and rocking restlessly under him. What do you mean, what king? shouted old Thrashbarg. The king! It's just that you never mentioned the king, shouted Arthur back in some consternation. What? shouted old Thrashbarg. The thrumming of a thousand hooves was very hard to hear over, and the old man was concentrating on what he was doing. Still holding the bird aloft, he led the beast slowly round till it was once more parallel with the motion of its great herd. He moved forward. The beast followed. He moved forward again. The beast followed again. At last... The beast was lumbering forward with a little momentum. I said you never mentioned a king, shouted Arthur again. I didn't say a king, shouted old Thrashbarg. I said the king. He drew back his arm and then hurled it forward with all his strength, casting the picker bird up into the air above the herd. This seemed to catch the picker bird completely by surprise, as it had obviously not been paying any attention at all to what was going on. It took a moment or two to work out what was happening, then it unfurled its little wings, spread them out, and flew. Go! 
shouted Thrashbarg. Go and meet your destiny, sandwich maker! Arthur wasn't so sure about wanting to meet his destiny as such. He just wanted to get to wherever it was they were going so he could get back off this creature again. He didn't feel at all safe up there. The beast was gathering speed as it followed in the wake of the picker bird, and then it was in at the fringes of the great tide of animals, and in a moment or two, with its head down, the picker bird forgotten. It was running with the herd again, and rapidly approaching the point at which the herd was vanishing into thin air. Arthur and Ford held on to the great monster for dear life, surrounded on all sides by hurtling mountains of bodies. Go! Ride that beast! shouted Thrashbarg. His distant voice reverberated faintly in their ears. Ride that perfectly normal beast! Ride it! Ride it! Ford shouted in Arthur's ear. Where did he say we were going? He said something about a king, shouted Arthur in return, holding on desperately. What king? That's what I said. He just said the king. I didn't know there was a the king, shouted Ford. Nor did I, shouted Arthur back. Except, of course, for the king, shouted Ford, and I don't suppose he meant him. What king, shouted Arthur. The point of exit was almost upon them. Just ahead of them, perfectly normal beasts were galloping into nothingness and vanishing. What do you mean, what king? shouted Ford. I don't know what king. I'm only saying that he couldn't possibly mean the king, so I don't know what he means. Ford, I don't know what you're talking about. So? said Ford. Then, with a sudden rush, the stars came on, turned and twisted around their heads, and then, just as suddenly, turned off again.